Thank you for tuning in. We trust you will feel encouraged, uplifted, and inspired to build God's kingdom with us. Enjoy the message. Fantastic. All right, let's get into the book of James. So let's start with James chapter 1 from verse 1 to 4, and that's what we're going to cover this morning. I just wanted to say to you, I was supposed to cover from verse 1 to verse 18 of chapter 1, but uh, you'll see we're only going to get through the first four, four verses in the next half an hour to 40 minutes, which, uh, so hopefully it will speed up over, over the next couple of weeks. All right, let's read it together. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So verse 1 starts and it says, James, a servant of, of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you start looking at a letter or a book, you often have to start by saying, who's the author? Now, I'm not too sure that this one's too difficult because it says James. I'm sure James was the author. Um, the book was written in, in AD 50, which is quite significant because it's the very first letter or book that was written. Before the Gospels, um, you'll see that it was only about 15 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this is the first book of, in, in, in chrono, chrono, chronology eh? um, that was written. And so um, I think it's quite an important book that we need to go through. The question is, who is James? Now, there are four Jameses mentioned in the Bible. There's James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, who was an apostle. There's James, son of Alphaeus, who was an apostle. There's James, the father of Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but the other Judas who was also an apostle. And then the fourth one is James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you start to look at the church history, you start to see that um, church fathers close to that era, they said that the person who wrote this book was James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's not much dispute about the fact that it was James, the brother of Christ. Now, as I was pondering on that, I thought, I wonder what it was like in the house of Jesus Christ. I wonder what it was like to be a brother of Jesus. The Bible says that there were five brothers. Jesus was the eldest, and then there were four, and that there were sisters. It just says sisters, so we don't know how many there were. There's definitely more than two. So there were at least seven in the house, seven children. So I was thinking, imagine, you know, Jesus can't lie. So imagine when um, somebody stole unleavened bread from the cupboard, and uh, Mary would say, Jesus, who stole it? And he'd probably go, James. <laughs> and James was like, come on, dude, what's up here? You know? I mean, imagine when they're fighting and James like angry and he's upset and he's just boiling and Jesus says to him, James, I know what's in your heart. You know? And I think that it must have been quite an interesting dynamic having Jesus as your brother. But the, what we do know about James is that him and his brothers didn't believe in Christ while Christ was alive. John chapter seven, uh, John seven, verse five says, "For not even his brothers believed him." And um, there's, you can go look at Mark three twenty one, John seven to three to five, and you'll see that his family didn't really respond to him as Christ the Savior. But we do know that he did give his life to the Lord. He did follow Christ because he wrote this book and he said he's a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. But this happened after Jesus was resurrected. The Bible tells us in one Corinthians um, that Christ actually appeared to James on his own. And at that point, everything that Jesus said must have resonated in James's heart because he told him that he would die and raise, rise again, that he's the son of God. And when he saw this, he must have, it must have all flooded back. And he must have said, this is the son of God. 
Everything he said is true. And in fact, it transformed his life to such a point that he became the most prominent leader in the New Testament church. He was the leader of the Jerusalem, the church of Jerusalem, which was the first church of the New Testament. And so we do know that he must have been a very prolific spiritual leader to, to get himself into that kind of position. What we do know from him is that he was also a man of prayer. I've left my book again in my bag. Anyway, there's, there's a quote that I wanted to read to you and basically said this, and it was a historian, said that James often would come into the temple alone and spend hours on his knees in prayer for people to be saved. And, and they would call him the man with the camel knees because there were calluses on his knees that had grown over years of spending so much time on his knees in prayer. And when you start to look at that, and you start to look at chapter five of James, when he says, you know what, the prayer of a righteous man attaineth much. It must have been out of his experience all the prayer that he was doing. The Bible tells us in AD 62 he died. He was taken to the pinnacle of the, of the, the temple, and it's, it's ironic that it was the temple, the pinnacle of the temple that Satan took Christ to, the same point. But they threw him off, and he fell, and he didn't die. He was still alive, but they went down, they clubbed him to death. And that's how he, he lost his life um, in AD 62 as a martyr for the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he writes this letter, and the Bible tells us it's to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. And so we know that he's writing it to Christians. We know it's to the Christians that have been dispersed um, into the world, and he's writing to encourage them. But this is what he's writing about. And I've got them on the, on the board there because I think all these topics are relevant for the church today. He writes about how impatient they have been in their difficulties, and he encourages them to have a different perspective. I think that's something that's real for us today. He writes about the fact that they are talking about their faith, but not actually living their faith. He says that there's a problem because they cannot keep control over their tongues and it's having a major problem in their lives. He talks a lot about fighting and infighting and coveting because they want what they desire instead of favoring the one above another above themselves. And there is an obsession with riches and worldliness that's having an impact in their lives. And when you look at that, you start to realize that this is a relevant book for us today. This is something that we need to learn from, that we need to take heed to. And that's why I start this morning by saying to you that if you live what you're going to learn over the next few weeks, it's going to change your life. It's going to help you mature and it's going to help you deal with some of these issues in our lives. So we find that as you look at the book of James, it's very re relevant for the church today. I think it's going to challenge us to mature a bit. And I think that's fantastic. And so this morning, I'm only going to look at verses 2 to 4. And verses 2 to 4 reads like this. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That's verse 2. And let's start there. There's two important words when you start to look at this verse. They are the, the two that you should be looking at here is when and meet. You're going to ask me, but why don't you start with count it all joy? We'll get to the end because you need to know why you have to count it all joy. So he starts off by telling you what the right attitude is, and then he unpacks why you should have that attitude. So we're going to unpack it, and then we'll get back to the why you count it as all joy. But he starts off, and he puts these two words, when and meet, into the, into this, um, into the first verse. And it's very important because it puts the context to our trials. And so it's important that we just pause here for a little while and try and understand what he's actually telling us. I think today, as believers, we can identify with trials. I think that all of us 
have had a trial in our lives. You know, many of us are probably going through a trial. You know, it might be a physical thing. You may be going through a spiritual trial. We're in the wilderness and you just can't seem to find where God is. It might be a financial trial. You might have been retrenched. You may not have a job. And, and there's a financial trial that you're dealing with. Maybe it's relational. It's marriage or friendship or, or family. And so we're quite familiar with trials. Maybe you're, you have come through a trial and uh, you're taking a bit of a break. Praise God for that. Eh? But if you are here this morning and you're saying to me, Nick, what is a trial? Brace yourself. Take notes because there's one coming. Probably soon. And so trials is a part of life. When James writes this, he says, when we meet trials of various kinds. This word, you must understand, does not mean that there's a possibility that we are going to meet trials. It simply means this. There's an inevitability that you are going to meet a trial. And so what James is starting to communicate in that first verse is that trials is a norm in this world. It's part of life. It's not if you're going to have a trial, it's when you're going to have a trial. I think I thought that this was quite insignificant, but the more I started to reflect on it, the more I started to look at it, I started to realize that this is an important point. Because when we go through trials, we often think that we're the victims. We often blame God. We, we get angry and we get discouraged and we get bitter and we move away from God and, and all these kind of things because we don't understand the context of trials in our lives. And so we make the wrong conclusions. However, although we know what the Bible says, we are still the same. Every time we go through a trial, we're shocked, surprised, discouraged because what is God up to in my life? The sad thing is, and I'm hoping to show you this a little bit this morning, is that when we have the wrong perspective of trials, it has the potential to shipwreck your faith. And that's what I think James is trying to avoid. He's trying to teach them that their faith doesn't get shipwrecked but they endure till the end. Elipaz, one of Job's friends, writes this. He says, for man is born for troubles. That's quite encouraging, isn't it? As sparks fly upwards. Jesus said in John 16, 33, in this world you will have trials and trouble. Paul echoes the same thing in Acts 14, 22. He says this, strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in their faith and saying that through many trials and tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Here's the point. If you're alive, you're gonna have trials. We're not victims. The world's not against us. God's not angry with you. It's a part of this fallen life, this world that we live in, trials. And so best we understand, and what I think James is trying to communicate when he says this inevitable nature of trials is to say to you, it's going to be there. Best we know how to deal with it effectively as Christians. The second thing he describes about these trials is that they come in various kinds. This word various just simply means multicolored. I was thinking about it's probably why we call it a blue Monday and a great Tuesday and whatever your favorite color Friday because in this weekend, you know. But all, it's, all he's trying to express is that these trials that are inevitable are going to come in different shapes and sizes. Today it's going to be finances, tomorrow it's going to be spiritual, the next day it might be physical. It's, it, it changes. It's not always going to be the same thing. It's not always going to be the same degree of intensity. And so we must understand that the trials come in different shapes, different sizes, and various, in, in various ways, which is quite encouraging, don't you think so? We know as human beings that 
we, we face trials simply because of the fallen nature of this world, but we also face trials because we're Christians and there's persecution. And so maybe you're going through a trial because you're being persecuted in your family or in your workplace or, or school adversity. And all these are included in this term of trials. You see, James places us into the context of what a trial is. It's something that is inevitable. It's something that will be multifaceted. And then he adds on to this, and he says, the word meat. Very interesting, because that word meat means that you fall into unexpectedly. So what he's saying is that when you and I live in this life, we are going to unexpectedly fall into trials. You see, many times when we look at trials, we think that it's because of our sin. We think it's because we've, we sinned and so therefore there's a trial. Think of Job, Job's friends. You know, they said to Job, you must have sinned. You must have sinned. We tend to do the same. We look at our trials and the first thing we go is there must be sin in their life or my life and we still with this. But this isn't really what James is getting at at all. He's getting at the fact that there's an inevitability of trials and they're going to happen in the most unexpected times. It's the same word that was used for the, the Good Samaritan. You know, it says that he fell in, the man fell into the hands of the robbers. He was just merrily walking down the road. And the next minute, no warning, nothing. And you think to yourself, that's interesting. Let me tell you when this happens. is when you sit back and you go, how did I get myself here? How did this happen? I, I can't believe it. And when, when you think of that, you think about, man, I know trials like that. I know many trials like that where I sit back and go, how did this get to this point? How did this happen? It's so unexpected, so surprising. Didn't see it coming. You see, we live in a church world that challenges us a little bit with, I think, wrong theology. I think that there's often that you would find people preaching that uh, you come to Christ and all your financial problems are going to be resolved and all your relational problems are going to be resolved, and life is going to be a blessing, and it's just going to be heaven on earth. I think when you start to look at what James teaches here, and when you start to see what Jesus echoed, and what Paul echoed, and, and what the Old Testament echoes, it's not true that even though you believe in Jesus Christ, you're still going to have trials in this world, but the good news is this, is that every trial you face, the, the King of Kings is right alongside you. And that's what the difference is between me and you and somebody that doesn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is that you'll never, ever face your trial alone because Christ is always with you. I want you to consider this morning the trials of Abraham. Remember, Abraham was barren. Oh, his wife was barren. They didn't have a child. There's this promise. And then the child gets born. And then what? Go and, go and sacrifice your child. Trials he had to go through. I was thinking of Joseph and the trials. Not only was he taken as a slave to a foreign land and a, a slave in a palace, but then he ended up in a prison, a trial. Most unexpected time. Moses, I mean, I was thinking about Moses. Imagine what Moses must have felt like. He's leading this nation and he has this army and, and all, I think, if I was Moses, I would have expected that it would have been like a smooth road to freedom. But what does he get to? A Red Sea. A Red Sea. Unexpected trial in his life. And you can go through Israel, David, um, you know, David with Saul, and all the trials he went through with there, John the Baptist, Jesus, the disciples, Paul, and you see this recurring, recurring story that at the most unexpected times, we face trials in our lives. But all those stories show us 
that if you put your hope and your trust in Jesus Christ, no trial will crush you. It will only strengthen you and make you more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so... Wait, no, I've lost my place. Yeah. And so not only are trials inevitable, but they happen in the most unexpected times of our lives. When they probably not, it's not the best time in life. Think about it. You know, one week you're eating sushi and the next week you don't even know where your next meal is going to come from because you've been retrenched. You know, we're playing golf on Tuesday and by the way, we need two more people. Half past 11 Tuesday at CMR, please give me your names because we need to just fill one more football. But you play golf this week and next week you don't even know if you can walk. You know, you, you're planning a family holiday this week but next week you're facing a divorce. Because sometimes these things are so unexpected. I was thinking about it, you know, when you don't have money, what happens? The car breaks, the fridge breaks, the TV breaks, the school wants more money. But when you've got money, nothing happens. And I was saying, I was saying Lord, this is just weird. But I felt the Spirit of God say to me, but that's because you need to trust me. If you didn't need to trust me, what's the point? You know, and I thought, help me, Lord. James chapter 2 simply says this. Don't make the wrong conclusions. Don't make the wrong conclusions. Trials are part of life. It's going to happen. But from verse 3, we start to see why trials are an opportunity for a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So verse 3 starts by, this. it says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, this is verse 4, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Verse 3 starts in a very interesting point. He says that these trials are inevitable, that they come in many forms and many shapes and many degrees. But, verse 3, for you know. So these trials aren't surprising. These trials don't happen and you're in the dark. These trials aren't going to confuse you because there's something that you need to know about these trials that is very important. And I want to just pause here for a little while because what is it? that you're supposed to know. Well, this word expresses the following, th the, the following thought, and I'm gonna read it to you. It is fully understanding something, not just factually, but an understanding that comes from personal experience. So what he's saying is that this knowing that he's talking about in verse three, for you know, is not something that's in your head, it's something that's in your heart. It's something you know because you've experienced it before. Let me give you a couple of examples. You know when you go to the doctor and you cough, <laughs> and he goes, oh, I've heard that before, I know what that is. You see, that's knowing because of experience. You know, when you go to a mechanic and you say, well, my car, I don't know, I don't know what's wrong with it. He says, start it. And you start and he goes, oh, I know what that is. Because he hears something which, I don't know how it works, but they hear something. And he goes, why? Because that's experience. You know, when your wife walks into the house and she's got that look on her face. And you know, now's not the time to have this discussion. Why is that? Because of experience. You see, so, so he uses this word. And he says to, to us that when we are facing these unexpected trials that are part of our life, and we see, we're in the midst of them because we just fall into them, so they're around us, we're not shocked and surprised because we've probably experienced this before. We've experienced trials before. And because we've experienced them before, we should know that because God was faithful last time, he'll be faithful now. Because God carried you last time, he'll carry you now. Because he provided for you and protected you last time, he'll provide and protect, for you, protect you now. 
in the trial that you face. And so when we start to look at these trials in our lives, maybe you're going through a trial, you need to look at this trial and not go, what's going on? You need to look and say, I know exactly what's going on. God's at work. Something's happening here. My faith is being tested. God is in this. And he's going to walk with me like he did the last time and the time before that. And you see, it's so important that you and I learn to endure through our trials and our tests so that every time that you face a trial and test, you've got a memory, a, they call it corporate memory in business, a memory, a rest that, that can say, I have experienced in my past the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ and he's never changed and this might be bigger and more threatening and I, may, I might be more scared, but he's never changed and this thing, I know what it is. Think of what David said when, uh, in 1 Samuel. He says this, the lion and the bear... I've killed. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine think he is? What's he saying there? Because of my experience, where God was with me when I killed the lion and I killed the bear. Yeah, yeah, he has a, he has a giant. But my experience tells me of my God that this is going to end no different to what that ended. That's knowing. That's knowing. I'm not saying that God puts, um, God willfully just gives trials to us. I don't, I'm not too sure that the Bible teaches that. I think we see from Job that all these things actually come from the devil, but God does allow them. You know, from Job we can see that, that God does allow it. And I love verses like the story of Joseph. You know the story of Joseph? And I don't have time to get in there, but anyway, he was poorly treated. He was put in a prison. Uh, life was terrible for, for, I think, 17 years, I think it was. But he comes to the end when the, the fulfillment of the vision God gave him. And in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, he says this, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Paul echoes a very similar thought in Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for, the, for their good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And so we see that it doesn't matter what life throws at you, that the God you serve can turn that around and bring out of that what is good for you. And I think that should be encouraging for us as we look at the trials that we face in our lives. So verse 3 starts, it says, because you know, because of your experience of the past, and you know who God is, you know that when you're going through a trial, that your faith is being tested. That your faith is being tested. I don't think that um, we ever have to wonder what our faith is like. All we need is a trial to show us what our faith is like. You know, we don't have to wonder what kind of faith we have. All we need is a trial to quickly show us the kind of faith we have. I don't think God ever allows a trial into your life so that you can fail. I don't believe that at all. I think God does allow trials in our, in, into our lives to grow us. But here's one of the ways we grow is that when we face a trial, we start to see what's in us. And we start to see how, possibly how far we are from what God really wants from us. And then we catch up and we grow because we become what we see is missing. As Elizabeth wrote an exam, mathematics the other day, and uh, she did very well, but there was one section. I think she got one out of 12 or something. So I said to her, Bear, I don't think you're very good at this. She said, no, Dad, I don't understand percentages. And as I was preparing, I thought, I think that's what God does through our trials. He helps us see where the gaps are in our faith. 
so that we can, we can work at it and grow it and strengthen it into our lives. There's four kinds of faiths, and I, I take you back to the, the parable of the seeds. I'm not going to read it, but the parable of the seeds grow, and, and, and we see that four things happen to these seeds. And they, they kind of indicate different types of faiths. Obviously, there's people that have no faith in God. Excuse me. And when they go through their trials, they are only going to turn to logic and to humanistic ways of dealing with their issues, which often is very tragic eventually. But then we see a second type of faith, a shallow faith. The Bible tells us in Matthew 13, 21, Jesus explains what the shallow faith is and says, it has no root, but it endures for a while. And when the sun comes up, which, which represents trials and tribulations and persecutions uh, on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And I'm thinking, as a pastor, I've seen this so many times, and I'm sure Jock and Pete can, can echo that. You know, you see people come into the church and they give their lives to Christ, but they don't grow in their faith. And the minute a trial comes into their life, instead of drawing close to God and allowing it to develop their trust and their faith in God, they become bitter and angry and fall away from God because they have shallow faith. The third is a conditional faith. We see that um, th- there's a type of faith that says, I'll serve you when it's going well, Lord, when it's all working out in my favor. But when life gets tough, then I'm not too sure I want to be your friend. It's a very conditional faith. And then you get true and genuine faith, faith that endures, faith that when the seed that is planted in your heart actually brings about a harvest for eternity because of your hope and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let me ask you this morning, the trial that you're going through or the trial you've just been through, what kind of faith has it illustrated that you have? What kind of faith... Has it shown you that you have? May God give you the wisdom and the grace to build that which is lacking in your faith. But trials put what we believe to the test. Trials, take, takes, trials help us to see whether it's in our head or whether it's in our heart. Trials are the ways that God shows us because he knows exactly what kind of faith we have. James tells us that we know that it's the testing of our faith, and that the testing of our faith produces two things. It produces endurance, and it produces the perfection of our faith. Um, Let me just read that to you. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its it's perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So we see that this testing of your faith produces two things, endurance and a perfection of your faith. But before we get there, we have to pause on the word produce. It's an important word. Because when you look at this word produce, it doesn't mean that your trial is like that. It means that a trial is a process. And it's probably going to take time. You know, if you want to produce an apple, you don't go, apple, You have to plant a seed and you water it and it grows and it produces an apple. I don't know how baking works, but I was thinking it's probably the same principle. You don't just go, chocolate cake, boom, chocolate cake. I wish it was like that, that would be so cool there. But it's not like that. You probably put ingredients together, you get the oven ready, and you get it, and then it stands, and you put icing on, and it stands, and then you make everybody wait because you know that they want to eat it, and then you eat it. Okay. The point is this. The testing of your faith produces something and the 
process of producing something takes time. Our challenge is this. When we go through our trials, what's our first response? Get me out of this thing now. God, I want you, I want it out now. I rebuke the devil in Jesus' name. Out! Breakthrough! Yes! But have you ever gone to the dentist and halfway through him fixing the filling, you said to him, I've had enough, I'm finished now. You take it all off. I'm done. No, 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 we endure the dentist because we know at the end of the process it's going to be fixed. But spiritually, we seem to struggle with this concept that as God has us in a process to shape our faith and to grow our faith and to strengthen our faith and to make us into the image of Christ, we want to give up halfway. And we want to run for the hills. And we never ever, if we have that attitude, never ever find the endurance that's required for faith to the end. God never promises us, well, let me put it the other way. God promises to deliver us from evil, but he never promises to deliver us from our trials. He, in fact, tells us this, that he will walk through the valley with us from one end to the other, and he will strengthen, and he will care, and he will love, and he'll, he'll be alongside you, and he'll give you everything you need because you are overcomer because of him in you, but you'll have to walk the road. He's not a helicopter that comes and takes you out halfway because that grows nothing. Let me give you a practical example. When I started running, I could run from lamppost to lamppost. It was like one lamppost run, five walk. One run, five walk. It was terrible. Eh? But it didn't take too long, and then I was like getting there. And it got to a point where I could run for half an hour. No problem. But what would have happened if after two weeks of lamppost to lamppost, I stopped for six months? And start again. I'd probably start from lamppost to lamppost again. And you see, we do this with our faith. When God has us in a process because he's shaping something in us, we, we, we tap out. And then when we get serious again, we end up in that same, same place. Because there's something that needs to grow. And so many people struggle to grow in their maturity and in their faith because they keep on tapping out during the trial. Instead of allowing the trial to develop what it needs to develop in you so that you can move on and become more in the image of Jesus Christ. So it produces endurance. Endurance simply means a quality of inner strength that helps us to trust and patiently endure trials. It means this. It's like a weightlifter who's holding weights and you just stand there and you just stand unmoved and you just hold this thing up. That's what endurance means in this context. I have a friend who um, I give HR advice to. Uh, that's how it started. We, we need HR, and so we started to meet over the years. Um, and every time he had a problem, we would chat about it. But I remember that uh, there was something that always impressed me about him because when I met him, he would say to me, Nick, you know, cash flow is always a problem in my business. People owe me money. And of those years, and it wasn't five years ago maybe, it would be tens of thousands of rands. He would say, Yo, I need this money to come in. And every morning I go in and I just trust God. I'm not going to go make loans. I can't do that. I'm going to trust God. I pray over my books, and I trust that the money comes in. And God was faithful through the tens of thousands of rand. And as the years have progressed, it started to become hundreds of thousands of rands. I would meet with him, and he'd say, I need 300,000 300, rand that needs to come in, in by, by Monday. People need to pay me by Monday because I need to pay. And, and it was the same concept, but different amounts. Now we're talking, the last time I met with him, he was waiting for a million rand. Saying, there's a million, I'm trusting God. 
Although the severity of his trial has increased, the way he's handled it has never changed. And let me tell you, the outcome has never changed. God has always been faithful. That's what it means to endure under your trial. Why is enduring under your trial so important? I think that it's, 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 a, it's a concept that Matthew 13, 21, with the seeds, starts to highlight to us. Because Jesus says that the problem is this, that if your faith and your roots are not deep enough in Christ, that when the heat and the pressure and the trials of this world come, you die in your faith. Listen carefully to what that means. And if you and I don't allow the trials of, our, of this, this world to help us to build deep faith in Jesus Christ, the chances is that there will come a time where those trials are too big and you'll fall away from him. And we see this over and over in the house of God. God is using our trials to build endurance. Endurance till when? Till the end. You, we are going to have to endure the trials of our lives, till the day we see Jesus Christ. And if we tap out halfway, we run the risk of our relationship with him. This is a big deal. And that's why I want to encourage you this morning. If you're going through a trial, let God build the faith in you because when you start to have the experience that God is always faithful, the next trial, you'll know what he's doing and you'll have the endurance to continue under the weight so that more faith and more faith and there'll come a day that you'll even be willing to give up your life for him because of the faith that you have in Jesus Christ. So it's an important issue. The second thing we see is that it, it produces perfect faith. Let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I must come to an end here. This word perfect does not mean sinless perfection. It simply means maturity. Endurance builds maturity in our faith. All right, it's quite a simple process, but the picture here is quite important. The picture here is of a goldsmith or a silversmith and, and they would heat the, the, the liquid and um, as they put more and more heat, the, the dirt and the uh, dross, is that the right word there? Sounds wrong. Comes up and they would scoop it off. They would put more heat and more of the gunk would come up and they'd scoop it off. And you know when they knew it was pure? It was simply when they looked over it and they could see their own reflection. Now when you look at that picture, at the picture of this maturing faith, we start to see what, what's actually behind this thing. We start to realize that, you know what the trials in our, life, in our lives do? They start to show us where the impurities in our faith sit. And it's the heat of the trial that brings it up. And all God wants to do is to help us to remove that from our lives. In this continuous process of removing all the junk from our faith and all the junk from our faith to the point that one day when he looks into our hearts, all he sees is the reflection of his son, Jesus Christ, in our lives. And so we see the value and the power and, 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 and the opportunity of trials in our lives. As I bring it to an end this morning, I just want to say to you, this is why James starts off and he says, count it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Because it's an opportunity. This word count is a, is a, a counting term. Um, it's a mathematical term. It means to evaluate. What are you evaluating? You're evaluating this trial 
in the light of what you know about God. You're evaluating your trial in the light of what you know about God. That's what you're evaluating. Why is it important? It's important because he doesn't say feel pure joy. He says count it pure joy. What does that mean? It means that when we go through trials, our emotions will tell us it's painful. Our emotions are going to say to us, where's God? Our emotions are going to say, this is unfair. Our emotions are going to say, we're a victim. Our emotions are going to tell us, well, if God loves me. But that's not the point. What he's saying to you is when you start to evaluate about who God is, it doesn't matter what you feel about your trial, you have to make a willful decision to trust the God that you know. So that's why you count it. It's a willful decision, not an emotional response. And I think it's a struggle for us because our, our natural tendency is to have an emotional response to our trials and to make conclusions that God doesn't love us, that God doesn't care, that God's not in it. Makes us bitter and feel like victims. In conclusion, here are the important things that we need to know. We can count it joy for the following reasons. Because when we evaluate our trials, we know this. God is up to something in your life. That he's building endurance so that you can run this race to the end. And he's building within you a faith that will reflect his son, his son, when the world looks at you. Secondly, not in this text, but it's, I think it's important. Trials do draw us nearer to God. Uh, as I was, was writing this point, I was saying, God, surely we're close to you all the time. And, uh, and it, got, it was like, just like that, God just reminded me of a time I was um, walking with Elizabeth in Dahlstrom in a forest, and we were close in proximity. Like the Sunday, she was there and I was here, and we were walking. But we were close, you know. It's... But then, then there was a, the noise of thunder, and she walked towards me and said, Dad, will you pick me up? I picked her up. And I realized that that's what trials do. Although when things are well, we're still close to God. But it's our trials that put us into his arms. So many times we run from him, and all he's saying is, come closer. When it's our trials, we pray more, we seek him more, the intimacy is there, we read more. All the devil's trying to tell, tell you is that you're a victim and that God doesn't care, and all God's saying to you, just come closer to me. I'll walk through this thing with you, and I'll do what I need to do in your life so that you'll be, you'll, your faith will mature, and that you'll endure till the end. James challenges our attitude towards trials and the trials that you might be facing in your life at the moment. He encourages us to have the right perspective. The right perspective is this. The trials are inevitable. They come in many forms and shapes. And they probably come in the most unexpected, inopportune times in your life where you think that it couldn't get any worse because that's when you need Jesus the most. But when you look at these trials and the trials that you face, you don't look at them as somebody who's confused and you don't know what's going on. You look at them as somebody who's got past experience in the God that you serve and you know that it's your faith being tested because in endurance that is being built in you so that you can walk this walk to the end and that you can reflect Christ in this world. That's why it's an opportunity for joy. Not because you feel it, but because you know it, because you know who your God is. Amen.